The man had a bandage around his leg where his pants had been ripped. Blood soaked it red. Help! He croaked out. Please, help me! T'Challa took another wary step. He didn't know who the man was, but his father always said it was his duty to help those in trouble. A rustling in the bushes made them both pause. M'Baku started. What was that? T'Challa didn't have time to answer, as four figures stepped through the trees. That's Dion Graham, narrating Black Panther, The Young Prince by Ronald Smith. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. As an audiobook narrator, Dion Graham is the man of a thousand voices, all of them guiding listeners through stories, both complicated and simple. From a 19th century man narrating his escape from slavery to a monster in Dave Edgar's Wild Things. Dion is the voice that explains the ideas of astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he leads you through the shoals of poverty uncovered in Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted. He's narrated many biographies and autobiographies, including Miles Davis, Barack Obama, and Muhammad Ali. And he's read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. He's a laid-back detective and a predatory alien. An oral shapeshifter, Dion Graham has won literally scores of awards for his audio work. But while audiobook narration is a big part of his resume, it is only part. Dion Graham has to be one of America's hardest-working actors. You've seen him on television programs like Law & Order, Madam Secretary, and The Wire. He's a well-regarded presence on New York and regional theater stages, performing the work of playwrights such as August Wilson, Marcus Gradley, and William Shakespeare. He operates at the sweet spot of acting, well-known and highly regarded within the business. As someone who listens to audiobooks, I know some of the many voices of Dion Graham. But when I spoke with Dion, I began where he began, with the theater. You've done, and you still do, a lot of stage work. Yeah, definitely. What was your first play? My first play. <laughs> Professional job. Well, so here, so I'm going to answer this two ways. As a kid, I was in a uh, mixed with kids and some college students at Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. It was called the Mini Mummers, and a woman named Kay King ran that. Uh, in fact, Sarah Jessica Parker was a part of that, as well as some other people. Um, and anyway, we did this production called I Sincerely Doubt This Old House is Very Haunted. <laughs> and I think I was a hobgoblin or something like that. I'm sure I didn't get paid for that. I'm sure I was probably in sixth grade or something like that. But the first thing that I can remember getting paid for, uh, first play that I got paid for, was a play called Mr. Roberts. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was in college. I hadn't gotten cast in uh, the big production, which I think was Cherry Orchard. And so it seemed like I was going to have a lot of time in my hands, and I wanted to act. And I saw this notice in the local paper for casting for uh, Mr. Roberts at La Comedia Dinner Theater. And I drove the 40 minutes or whatever it was, and I auditioned, and, and I got it. And I got paid, I think, the princely sum of $200 a week or something like that. Hey, that's not bad. No, no, I, I was happy to get it. You've acted in so many plays that I, I'm really going to focus on just three or four. 
Let's start with August Wilson's Jitney. You performed in Jitney in your hometown of Cincinnati, which had to be a happy experience for you. It was a dream in all the best ways. We had a fantastic company. It was in Cincinnati early in my career. I was asked to come and do uh, a couple shows there. I was asked to first to come do Equus, and then Much Ado About Nothing, and then Colored Museum. Then. And so it's been all this time that I haven't come back to do anything, and the director, Timothy Douglas, uh, who's a friend and a tremendous artist, asked me to come do it. I was happy to come do it, and the cherry on top was that it was home, in my hometown, and where people who oftentimes don't get to see me do things live, they've seen plenty of stuff on TV and in film, but they hardly get to see me do things live, so uh, that, was, that was a real treat. And this particular production was, I like to say it was special and rare. I would call it like the, the XO <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of, of experiences, and it's a production that, that I wish everyone could have seen because we pretty much levitated nightly on that stage, and it was, it was really great. August, August's work, August's words are, are deep, and funny, and full of life, and they just have a lot to say about the African-American experience and the African-American psyche and, in relief, the American experience. And, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure it can speak to the human experience as well. In fact, that's the whole point. And then I did uh, August Wilson's Fences years ago, too, earlier in my career, playing Corey. And recently I was up for Troy uh, in a production of it. So I guess things have come full circle. Another play I just want to touch upon is On the Levee. Oh, yeah. And that was a devastating piece about the 1927 flood in Greenville, Mississippi. I was struck as we were working on it to find out that when the boats came to evacuate the people from town, that they did not evacuate the black people. So lots of lives were lost. A very, very deep piece I played a guy named Joe, who was the boot black to Mr. Percy, who was sort of the, the master of this, uh, well, you'd have to call it a plantation. And even though this was not during slavery times, still it, um, it certainly was a plantation, the big house. And uh, uh, he was the, the boot black and one of those people that you would find really, really distasteful to be around. But in fact, all that was ruse to make sure his son got an opportunity to be out of there. Yeah, and what a sad, true story that's been for so many people. True. And by the way, let me just say that was written by a great writer named Marcus Gardley, who's just, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. And he's also a very poetic writer. You were in the world premiere of John Grisham's A Time to Kill, directed by Ethan McSweeney, that ran at Arena Stage. That was Grisham's first novel, which he adapted into a play. You know, Ethan has done a lot in D.C., as you know. We've, we've had some, some really great and interesting artistic experiences together. Certainly putting together a, a Time to Kill was, was really interesting. The script was very much in flux because it was a new script. You know, it was very much in development, and I think it still had a little ways to go um, by the time we finished our run. But I was struck by how moved people were at the end of the evening and moved by um, the experience of uh, Carly, who I played in it. And just briefly, Carly, whose 10-year-old daughter was raped and beaten by two white supremacists, and he took justice into his own hands, and the play mostly centers on his trial. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate, Joe. I've had some, some really great experiences uh, and a really rich uh, experience. This makes me think about 
this world premiere of a Tennessee Williams play, a lost Tennessee Williams play that I did in London at the National, at the Royal National Theater. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave had found, she had been searching for it, and she found uh, this play, not about nightingales, and gave it to Trevor Nunn. And we brought over about, I think about five Americans, and so we had an Anglo-American cast. We played at the Cottesloe at the National, which was, <laughs> what can I tell you, it was just an incredible experience because it's not often that American actors get to work on those stages, uh, the premier theater in the English-speaking world. And so we did that for about six months, and then uh, we came back and did it here on Broadway as well. Tell me about The Wire. You worked on The Wire for a couple of seasons. You played state's attorney Rupert Bond. Yeah, season four and season five. Um, that was an, another incredible experience um, with some really good people. And I have to say, it was also great because I got to work with friends of mine. Uh, so the guy I played, Rupert Bond, who was the state's attorney, was prosecuting uh, rather famously um, this crooked senator, Clay Davis, on there, played by my friend Isaiah Whitlock. So, you know, we had a good time uh, doing that. And, you know, look, The Wire was, uh, was an incredible ride. I was really glad to be a part of that. But in terms of acting, TV is fabulous. The Wire was wonderful, but we know for like every three minutes you're on the screen, there are 15 hours of waiting around. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes there's a lot of hurry up and wait. That's true. Yeah. And that's very different, I would think, from audiobooks. Oh, yeah. The yeah, process. Everything. Oh, is... yeah. In audio land, it's happening right now. In a way, in a way, kind of how it is when I'm on stage. It's immediate. It's, uh, I think of it as flinging myself off the cliff, if you will. And books are different. So books call out to be told differently. But I do, I do try to jump off the cliff with it. But... In audio land, I can go back, and I do oftentimes go back to fix things or if I, something hits me that I think can be better or, uh, or I understand something better. Um, I definitely will go back and, and capture that. Now, how did you begin to narrate audiobooks? Well, when I was in London doing uh, Not About Nightingales, I met a friend of a friend who lives part-time in London and lives part-time in New York. He's an actor. And actually, I'm going to big up him right now. That is an actor. His name is Stephen Crossley. You know, I, I asked him, it sounded great. It sounded like a really interesting and fun experience. And I asked him to make an introduction when we got back to New York. So sometime later he did. And that's how the ball got rolling eventually. And uh, I had no idea that I would fall in love with that aspect of my career as well. And I also had no idea that so many people would appreciate my narrations too. So I, 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 feel, I feel triply blessed. Tell me how you choose what books to narrate, because you do you have a busy career. You're on stage, you're on television, you do audiobooks. I have to say that I get a lot of really interesting offers. That will that will go a long way <laughs> if the if the book is good and it's interesting. Sometimes there are certain books that, depending on what's what else is going on, that I, I have to turn down sometimes. If it's one that I can't either can't accommodate in my schedule or one that's you know, that's not uh, up to snuff enough that um, I can spend my time on it at that time. But I, Joe, I get overwhelmingly a lot of great, interesting offers. There's a book that I finished recently called American Histories by John Edgar Wideman, which is a collection of, I, I hesitate to call them short stories because they, they are all connected. It's a really deep piece of work. And I was told by the producers, the publishers, 
they've been looking for something to present me with. And this book requires a lot. It's, it's multidimensional. There are all kinds of things going on in it. And I, I jokingly said to them, I said, uh, after I read it, I said, it's fantastic and thank you so much. I just want you to know that every time you want to find a book for me, you don't have to, want, have to find one that requires me to bend time and space. <laughs> <laughs> and that book is coming out in mid-March. What's your preparation before you narrate a book? Well, uh, I read the book. Um, Good beginning. I, yeah, exactly. And... I try not to overthink anything. I just try to read the book. Um, I love to read. Uh, here's the thing about audiobooks, about narrating audiobooks. It is the delightfully delicious marriage for me of two things that I love. One, reading. Two, acting. There's a funny story. Oh, I think I was a junior in high school. My father had some chores that he wanted me to do, and I was like, yeah, I'll get to it. And I remember famous my dad said, he said, you know, all you want to do is a little reading and a little acting. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so, so this is a, it's a, it's a, I'm kind of like Pooh in the, in the honey pot. Let's hear an excerpt of Dion narrating Dave Edgar's book, The Circle. Okay, so many of you are thinking, well, this is just like closed-circuit TV crossed with streaming technology, satellites, all that. Fine. But as you know, to do this with extant technology would have been prohibitively expensive for the average person. But what if all this was accessible and affordable to anyone? My friends, we're looking at retailing these in just a few months, mind you, at $59 each. Bailey held the lollipop camera out and threw it to someone in the front row. Believe it or not, that was Dion Graham. Dion, you are a shapeshifter. Thanks, Joe. You narrate all of Edgar's books, don't you? Not quite all. Most I, I narrate most of Dave's stuff. Yeah, Dave and I have had a, been a really great collaboration. We certainly know each other a little bit at this point, too. And I, I was out in the Bay a couple years ago after we had done What is the What, and, and we were in the car, and Dave, Dave said, so uh, I don't know if you know, but I hear that most people come to the book, and What is the What, through your narration of it. And uh, they are really knocked out and moved. And I was like, oh, thanks so much, Dave. And he's like, yeah, so will you do all of them? <laughs> so, and The Monk of Mocha just came out. And The Monk of Mocha is Edgar's most recent work. Yep. For a long time, you've been committed to what you call your African-themed work. And you've developed a wide range of African accents. Yes, I do. There, there have been a number of books. They've, they've either been about African-themed work or there's been a prominent African character in it. Um, so the, those and, of course, African-American work. And I'm also glad to say that I get to do literature that, in which it's not just about African-Americans. It's about something else entirely. But I've gotten to do some African dialects, and uh, I've spent some time in Africa as well. Um, in East Africa and in West Africa. Yeah, in terms of the African-themed work, yeah, there have been quite a few. What is the What of Dave Eggers, uh, Radiance of Tomorrow, Ishmael Bea's great book, uh, his first uh, novel, actually. He, he's the guy who wrote Long Way Gone, which was kind of his memoir, actually. There's a great book that I loved, which is so haunting, The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears by Denao Mingestu. I love that book. That's actually a big read book in any a big read book. Really fantastic, haunting book. 
and just unfolds so gently and heartbreakingly uh, at the same time. Kenneth looks Kenyan. His skin is dark, his nose is long and thin, and yet his features are soft, almost delicate like a child's. He's six feet tall. But it's only in the past two years since he got his job that he's ever weighed more than 150 pounds. When he's drunk, he lifts up his shirt, blows out his stomach, and pats his protruding belly proudly. God bless America, he says with each pat. Only here can someone become the Buddha. I also love the title. Yeah, I do too. I do too. It's really, it's really evocative. Well, your voice also has to indicate uh, not just nationality or or race, but class and age and mm-hmm. region as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And emotional state. Definitely emotional state, because you're telling a story through all this. How do you go about doing that with just your voice? <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to explain it. Um Here's what I will say. I always feel like my first job is to bring it to life, not arbitrarily, but in response to whatever the work is, whatever the, you know, from a stage, whatever the, the play is, if it's a film, you know, whatever the script is, if it's an audiobook, whatever the book is. So I read the book, as I was saying before, and uh, I just try to be sensitive to, to what the author has written. Empathy is really important in doing that. I don't want to make, make that sound twee, because it's not that, okay, now I'm going to turn on the... No, it's just I just try to be open and responsive to what the author has written and just let it flow through the channel. And I feel fortunate that whatever uh, I came here with hopefully is, is in great service uh, to bringing all that to life. Do you get in touch with living authors when you can? I do. I, I always try to have a conversation with, um, with the author. I just find that it's just helpful. They wrote it, and... Inevitably, something comes up that I would not have known or that enhances the telling of the story or some aspect of the story. So it's great. I, I like it. I know some people prefer not to, but I, I really like to, uh, to have a, a chat with the author um, before I begin. I just find it really, really useful. Well, you've become such an important voice for telling African-American history and therefore American history. And some of it is well-known, like Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you would approach that, because we all know Dr. King's voice, but you're not trying to imitate him. No. No, and at the same time, I wanted to kind of lean towards the essence of him. His resonance in in the narration of it, I didn't want to be doing any kind of imitation of Dr. King, and I didn't want to be doing a a bad imitation for sure. So, you know, I experimented a little bit whether or not I could lean towards him and keep the, the, the focus on what he was saying. And in doing that, I think I, I may have picked up, you know, some of, of his rhythms and hopefully that enhanced the, the telling of that. Then there are titles that are little known, a book you did about the beginning of the Ku Klux Klan, for example, and that's, they call themselves the KKK, or A Slave No More, David Blight's book. Yes, somebody's done their homework. I love David Blight. <laughs> David Blight is, is great. And what a, what a great book that was. Uh, Turnage, who I read, he was just rightfully indignant 
about his situation. And man, in telling that story, you know, and just channeling that narrative, which, um, which David found, it was just really, really powerful. And Wallace Turnage was an enslaved person who fled the South during the Civil War. Yes. And the book, in part, is his own written narrative. Yes. You could feel him barely restrained, screaming into the wind uh, about his situation. And you also narrated Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. That's true, actually. That's very true. That was for a friend's project. I believe it was called Going Public in Shorts. Uh, a number of narrators contributed pieces on that pro bono to raise money to contribute to causes that supported literacy in young people. And I just thought, politically at the time, uh, we certainly were very divided. And that inaugural address by Abraham Lincoln, when he's talking about remembering that we are one people and let us knit together despite our differences, um, I just thought it would be uh, a really worthwhile read for the time. So, yeah, it was my choice, definitely. It was my choice. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I think that's probably his most acclaimed speech. It's certainly right there with Gettysburg. Did you hear it? Loved it, yeah. I oh. thought it was fabulous. Thanks, Joe. And it's funny, uh, there was no budget to do any of that, so I actually did it at home on my laptop in GarageBand and thought, and I'm not very skilled in GarageBand also, let me just say, uh, there was one, one little slight effect on it. It was a slight, uh, a, a slight reverb as if, and so I, the effect that was created was as if Abraham Lincoln uh, was standing in front of a, a large crowd of people at the inauguration, and that was a happy accident. <laughs> so, You have done so many extraordinary bios and memoirs. I, I can't even begin to count them, but Miles Davis, Muhammad Ali, Barack Obama, and so on. Again, you don't imitate those people, but in the case of Miles Davis, you, uh, you did adopt that raspy voice. Tell me why you did that. So when I was asked to do that, when I, when I was asked to do Miles the Autobiography, I'm a big Miles Davis fan been forever. Uh, when I was asked to do that, uh, of course, I was intrigued. And I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, so how am I going to do this? Because I, I thought, you know, I didn't, I really didn't want to do a bad imitation of Miles. And at the same time, I thought, but every, anybody who knows Miles, at particularly at this point of his life, knows his iconic sound. And I just thought a straight read, if you will, just wouldn't cut it if it were me. And I picked up this audio, and I had to hear a straight read of Miles, you know, talking about his life and his experiences. I just think I would not have bothered to listen to that. And so I, I looked at a, a lot of videos of his and just immersed myself in his music and, and uh, interviews and so forth. And I thought, well, let me, let, me, let me see if I can, you know, approximate this. And, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> 
as they say. Yes, you won one of your many awards for Miles. I'm really proud of that. That's one, uh, that's one of my favorites, I have to say. Listen, the greatest feeling I've had in my life with my clothes on was when I first met Diz and Bird together in St. Louis, Missouri, back in 1944. I was 18 years old and had just graduated from Lincoln High School. It was just across the Mississippi River in East St. Louis, Illinois. When I heard Diz and Bird and B's band, I said, what? What is this? Within the world of one book, especially in fiction, you create different voices for different characters. How do you keep them straight so that they each sound the same throughout the whole book? That's a great question, Joe. Well, you know, oftentimes, for whatever reason, I just have them straight inside me. But let's be real also. Sometimes there's so many characters. We have this great tool we can use, which is we make a, a memory location. Uh, we, we basically drop a marker for the character's voice. So let's say if it's two days later and I come back, and the character is, is present again, we can always listen back to it to hear exactly how it sounds. Usually I don't need much, but it's good to be reminded because sometimes characters, though they're different, the difference may be a matter of pitch or rhythm or something slight um, that might be hard to quantify, but when you, can, when you hear it, you know what it is. So I definitely use that, and that's not magic. That's just being smart. You do a lot of young adult books. Sure. You're, you cast a wide net. But young adult <laughs> is something that you really, you really do devote a great deal of time to. I do. I do. I, you know, listen, first of all, let me just say that, you know, besides my career as an artist, I've also simply maintained a, a, a commitment to working with young people all this time. I just remember, I remember, I remember the things that seemed small at the time. That when you look back, you know, you recognize that, wait, through that seemingly small thing, massive shifts happened in oneself. So I really get a lot out of working with young people and working for and with them, too. So in audiobook land, I've been blessed to do a lot of great YA, middle age, and children's titles. I hope I get to continue to do that for the rest of my career as well, as well as everything else. But... I really do enjoy enjoy that work. I'm, I'm thinking right now of something. I collaborate a lot with Live Oak Media, with Arnie and Deborah Cardillo, and I think the first thing we did that I was director and creative producer on uh, was a, a book by the great Walter Dean Myers called We Are America, illustrated by his son, Christopher Myers. But so many great things, The Rock and the River by Kekla Magoon, Jackie Woodson's Locomotion and Peace Locomotion, and Locomotion and Peace Locomotion are both about a boy in foster care who gets himself through life by writing. Dear Lily, every day the memories get a little bit more faded out of my head and I try to pull them back. It's like they used to be all colorful and loud and everything. They're getting grayer though. And sometimes even the ones that used to be loud get real, real quiet. Lily, do you remember? There was a time when all of us were together. There was a time before the fire and before nobody wanted to be my foster mama until Miss Edna came along. There was a time before your foster mama came and said, I'll take the little girl, but I don't want no boys. I'm getting ready to do a YA title of Dave's, Dave Eggers, called The Lifters, 
which is coming up soon. And I just narrated his picture book called Her Left Foot, which is about the Statue of Liberty and what it really means. How do you narrate picture books? Do you describe the picture? Well, here's what I, what's always key to me is, of course, you have the text there, but you're in response to not just the text, but you're in response to, you know, whatever the artwork is as well, whatever the, whatever the, whatever the pictures are. And I just try to let them be my guide and go from there. A, a sort of funny one, Chris Meyer, Walter D. Meyer's son, wrote this great book called H-O-R-S-E, Horse, as in the, the, ba- the kids' basketball game. Actually, we both narrated it because it's about these two friends who uh, have a healthy and fantastical competition uh, in life and on the, uh, on the basketball court. I directed this one as well. In, in an effort to just make Chris feel at home, because he, he doesn't normally narrate things, though he was great on it. I, I just, just wanted to create an environment where he, he felt free and we felt free to play as we went into the, into the jousting with each, with each other. And that created a great beginning of the book that led to just a fantastic, hilarious audio. And that you know, went on to, to win the Odyssey. So I'm really pleased about that for Chris and you know, for Arnie and Deborah as well. And the Odyssey Award is given by the American Library Association for Best Audiobook Produced for Children or Young Adults. Yes, ma'am. That's true. Thank you. How does narrating help with your stage work or your TV work and vice versa? Wow, that's an interesting question. And it's funny because I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, I think everything helps everything if you are open to it. And what I find, um, you know, when I'm narrating a book, when I'm narrating a story, I'm playing all of the parts and I'm also serving the role of tying the whole story together, which means point of view, tone, you know, hopefully channeling what the, what the author is trying to say, themes of the book. And I find that all of that is enormously deepening and connective in the rest of my, my work. And it's a circle. It's a bounce back, if you will, because I find the same thing happens for me in terms of audiobooks. I didn't have any, quote, audiobook training or anything like that. So basically, I didn't have any rules that I felt were important to follow besides connecting with the listener and bringing the story to life, happening authentically from, from my response to the book. So characters come alive. I love to act, Joe. I never thought I would be doing it as a career, but I have to say that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Dion, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Joe. That was actor Dion Graham. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can find Artworks wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple. It really does help people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.